Yo, hungry homies, time to talk about Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with awesome hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means you get amazing deals. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe to book. No long, endless lists of a zillion hotel choices. Hotel Tonight only shows you the best deals at the best hotels. Perfect whether you are a planner or you like to leave things to the very last minute. And with Hotel Tonight's HT Perks program, the more you book, the better the deals get. So start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels and download the Hotel Tonight app now. All right, Taste Buds, before we get into this week's outstanding house of carbs, couple plugs for what's going on at The Ringer. TheRinger.com, Allison Herman has a cool story about the Netflix moment that our homie John Mulaney is happy. That story is called John Mulaney is happy to be here. Check that out. Also, of course, on The Ringer Podcast Network, our own hungry homie, Dave Chang, Thursdays, we're still doing this great pre-opening diaries. He and the pod father, Bill Simmons, chopping it up about all the experiences Dave had in opening up his restaurant in L.A. Check that out again Thursdays in the Dave Chang podcast feed. And now let's get into the House of Carbs. taste buds by hungry homies my culinary comrades and by the end of this episode i hope a whole bunch of new bourbon buddies welcome back here we are another edition of house of carbs the food podcast for the hungry homies by the hungry homies i am your hungry host joe house and this show is part of the ringer podcast network i mentioned bourbon my friends, what a show today. Trey Zeller of Jefferson's Bourbon. He is the Marco Polo of bourbon, the mad scientist of the brown liquor. And of course, we have food news with a special cameo from an old ESPN homie, Half-Baked Ideas, Kevin Wilde, sent us a great story about some ice cream that I think all of you are going to love. Now let's get into that liver with our homie T. Ray Zeller. All right, my taste buds, my hungry homies, my culinary comrades. By the time we are done with today's very special guest, I hope uh, we're going to have along for the ride here several uh, new bourbon buddies. We have on the show today, very pleased and very lucky, the CEO of Jefferson's Bourbon, Trey Zeller. He's been called the Marco Polo of bourbon, bourbon's mad scientist. And we're going to get into it with Trey and, and find out what this is all about. Trey Zeller, how are you, my friend? Joe, life is good. Thanks for having me on. Can't complain a bit. Sun's shining down here. Yeah, I, I, I love it. The sun's finally shining up here. I, where are you right this second? At this moment, I'm in a parking lot outside of my son's lacrosse game that's about to start in Louisville, and Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. Beautiful. So so uh, where, the, the place where it all happens. You got it. You got it. The epicenter. So I, I uh, 
you you caught my attention, and 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 uh, we've been doing some some research on you here over the last couple of weeks, and I have to tell you, uh, my my mind's a little blown. Uh, so I'm I'm very happy to to have you on here and talk uh, talk me through some of these things. So. Um, basically, I know your your life story a little bit. You, ba- you you have bourbon running through your veins, in in essence. Am I right about that? It, it's through osmosis. You pick it up, if not through. Uh, uh, it is. It's a little bit of nature and nurture, actually, when you're in Kentucky. So yeah, actually, my my dad's a bourbon historian. I've got relatives that we can trace back as far as 1799 through arrest records. My eighth-generation grandmother was arrested for moonshining and bootlegging. So uh, a long heritage, and then just being in Kentucky and growing up here, as I said, you almost pick it up through osmosis. Everything my grandmother ever cooked with was smothered in bourbon. <laughs> so you you and your dad got started uh, in, in 1997 with, with Jefferson's. What were you doing before then? Uh, before then, I was hopping around the country. Um, I left uh, Kentucky and went to about a half dozen different places around the country. Uh, Las Vegas, Charleston, West Coast. Um, and as I would go to these various spots, I was very disappointed at the lack of bourbon choices. Maybe uh, Jim Beam, Wild Turkey, if you were lucky, a Maker's Mark, and that was about all that was available. And then I would come home for Thanksgiving or Christmas and drive past all, past all these old warehouses that I knew were packed and filled with all this great super-aged bourbon that was evaporating off into nothing or being blended into young bourbon. And I thought that there was a hell of an opportunity with this great liquid to bottle it up and showcase how great American spirit can be. And so uh, when you got started, what was the basic idea? I know it's kind of small batch uh, American uh, Kentucky bourbon, um, but what was, the, what was yeah. the, the sort of thought? So the idea was, you know, there was this great old bourbon that nobody was bottling up. And at the same time, single malt scotches with age statements, like an 18-year-old Macallan, 25-year-old Macallan, um, were on fire. And I thought we had as good, if not better, products sitting in our warehouses that were evaporating off. So I started buying up these small kind of esoteric lots of bourbon. So um, after I came out with Jefferson's Reserve, which was a straight 15-year-old bourbon, I came out with something called uh, Sam Houston, another 10-plus age bourbon. Um, I kept getting calls from distillers at the end of every fiscal quarter or year saying, Trey, I've got 400 barrels of a 17-year-old or 500 barrels of a 14-year-old bourbon. Are you interested in it? And uh, as I was about the only person buying any of this stuff, I, and I might note as I was buying it, I still couldn't give it away at the time. Uh, there was just not much of a, a palate for bourbon at that time. But I started bringing these bourbons together and blending them together or marrying these different batches so I could get more balance and complexity than what would happen typically with one um, straight distillate. And and at that point, you weren't doing the distilling yourself, right? That's correct. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to fall into this industry, or as I say often, too dumb to know better, to get in at a time that, you know, the bourbon category had been in a 30-year decline. 
which produced an enormous lake of great old whiskey that was available for me to purchase, uh, which is the exact opposite of what's going on now. Today, there's a big shortage of bourbon, especially with uh, with any age on it. Sure. So, um, you know, I benefited from timing, and you know, as I said, there was very little interest. As a matter of fact, Julian Van Winkle, owner of Pappy Van Winkle, and I split a table at the first whiskey fest in New York. And, okay. Um, you know, we were offering deals: buy five cases of his, get a case no charge; buy five cases of mine, get a case no charge. And we sold very few deals. There was just very few people interested in it. So we couldn't sell liquor stores or liquor store chains on a measly six cases of bourbon back then. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, things uh, changed. Right, things changed. Uh, where where did the, the experimentation uh, come from, and when, kind of when did that start? Well, I don't know if it's kind of always in my nature. I think I'm ADD. It's hard to concentrate on one thing, but I had a couple aha moments um, in the last 20 years of being in the industry that really made me look at bourbon from a different, uh, through different lenses, basically. One is when I went to uh, Costa Rica uh, during my 40th birthday on a friend of mine's ship. And as we were down there catching great white sharks and surfing, we drank a lot of bourbon on the bow of the ship. And as I saw the bourbon rocking back and forth in the bottle, I thought that certainly would happen in a barrel, and that would change the maturation uh, maturation in some shape or form. And I didn't know what would happen exactly, but uh, my friend Chris Fisher, the owner of the O-Search Expedition, was kind enough to put five barrels on a ship and take it out to sea for three and a half years. And what came back blew my mind. It was almost black in color, thick, and delicious. So I saw that if you change the environment and the agitation of the maturation process, you're going to drastically change the outcome of the product. Yeah. So what? What's just for background? And I, I'm a I'm a bourbon dummy. Uh, you know, I I think bourbon means Kentucky, Scotch means Scotland. Anything, everything else is whiskey except for rye. Uh, so I I just you know could use a me, me and the hungry homies could use kind of a, a primer. What's the what's the sort of a routine way for for bourbon to be made? What most people do is they distill grains. And to be bourbon, it has to be at least 51% corn. Most right. of the small grain is, is rye. Um, in some cases, it's wheat, as in Maker's Mark. But it's usually those grains that are cooked and distilled off. So once it comes off the distill, it comes off uh, clear as water. So that's known as white dog. Uh-huh. Once it's put into the barrel and aged, and typically that's aged in warehouses adjacent to the distillery, that's where the magic starts to happen. And most distillers will tell you somewhere between 70 and 80% of what bourbon is, or the heart and soul of bourbon, comes from the maturation process. And it takes years for that bourbon, and you've got to imagine the molecules as it gets hot, those molecules expand and push the liquid into the barrel, and as it gets cold, it contrasts and comes back out. The more it goes in and out of that barrel, it picks up color, flavor, and that wood, acts as a filter and strips the stringency of the alcohol. Mm-hmm. So to a point, the longer it's in there doing that, the more flavorful and mellow it becomes. 
But for the most part, it's just sitting in in a climate-controlled warehouse. That's the traditional way of doing it. Is that right? Or not climate-controlled? Not climate-controlled. There are some that have climate-controlled, but for the most part, the great thing about aging in Kentucky is if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes and it's going to change. So you have great (laughs) fluctuation in temperature, and that fluctuation in temperature moves the liquid inside of the wood. And that typically happens over seasons, kind of more on a micro area. um, You know, spring and fall is where you get the most fluctuations. Um, But it it really, it takes seasons or years for it to to really mature. And by changing that typical environment and the agitation of it, you're really able to force different flavors to come out. And that that's the so, thing that you, you stumbled upon, essentially. Correct. And it's almost like, you know, every time you pull back a layer of the onion, there's so much more that you can find out that you can do to it. It's kind uh-huh. of like, wow, if that works, then why can't we change this or change that? So today we have 16 expressions of Jefferson's bourbon. And of those 16 expressions, 14 of them, we do something different than what most distilleries do, which is distill, age, cut to proof, and bottle. So we're doing something during the maturation process, and it's basically putting more time, money, and effort in it one way, shape, or form to massage the juice in one area or another to produce certain flavors. And they usually tell a story of what we do to it that tells you why those flavors are prevalent. And as you said, you, you play around with one, another great aha moment for me is I went to a cooperage in Missouri. Um, It it happened to be the headquarters for independent stave company, which makes 80% of uh, the bourbon barrels in the United States. But they also have over, I think it's a dozen cooperages around the world. And they make wine barrels and other spirit barrels for all types of different uh, liquid to put in barrels. And they've been around for a hundred years and have an immense amount of knowledge and have used you know different techniques, whether it's um, seasoning or toasting or searing or slow cooking, grooving out the barrels that will produce different flavors. And they're being used in all these other spirits and wine. And when I went to their headquarters in Missouri and became a barrel chef for a day, I thought, why are we being so rudimentary in Kentucky and only using what is the traditional way to treat barrels, which is to char a barrel, which is to throw a big flame up in the inside of a barrel, which makes it more porous. The longer the flame, the more porous the barrel, the more porous the barrel, the farther the bourbon's able to, to penetrate inside it. But that's just one element of what they did there. And it gave me a, you know, a, a great expanse to, to think, wow, why don't we try to use some of these techniques that have been so successful in other spirits or wine? So I'm starting to get a, a feel for where this mad scientist reputation came from. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's funny. And, you know, bourbon is steeped in the tradition and heritage. And yes. we're always tipping our hat to that. And that's why I start with uh, fully matured bourbon before I start messing around with it. So I'm not Uh trying to cheat the process or accelerate it. I'm just trying to put layers on top of it. 
And there are some people that are saying, hey, wait, that's not the traditional way of doing it. And for them, there's plenty of bourbon out there that have been distilled, aged, cut to proof and bottled that they can they can choose from. All right, pals, quick break from this great chat with our man, Trey Zeller to talk about Thomas's English muffins. After a wonderful night of enjoying Jefferson's bourbon, my hungry homies, let me tell you what would go perfect either as you get home in the evening or perhaps when you wake up in the morning. If you're looking for a breakfast that is worth skipping the snooze button for, Thomas's is the only breakfast brand that delivers a -a one-of-a-kind eating experience with its original nooks and crannies English muffin. There is nothing quite like that nooks and crannies texture, perfectly toasted to give you irresistibly crispy edges with a soft, warm center. I can feel that crunch. I can smell it out of the toaster right now. Take it from me, House of Carbs, Joe House, the secret to revealing. The perfect nooks and crannies goodness every time is to gently pull it apart. You can use a fork right on the edges. Don't you dare use a knife. Take the two halves to that beautiful muffin, and we're going to lightly toast each half. And then right away, it should be hot in your hand. Get it down and get the butter onto there. Just watch that butter melt and pool inside all those amazing little nooks and cranny spaces. Get them down deep in the valley to the top of the crest. It is a delicious burst of flavor in every warm, toasty, buttery bite. If you have not had them already, first of all, I don't know what's wrong with you. You must rush right out and toast and butter yourself. Some delicious Thomas's nooks and crannies, English muffins They are truly like no other. And now back to our conversation with Brother Zeller. So I I, I don't want to uh, steal the punchline, but I think the Cooperage experience produced for you uh, an expression um, that you guys sort of call your wood experiments. Is that right? That's correct. That's Well, that's where they started. Um, Actually, in those wood experiments, when I was down in the Cooperage in 2012, I took a combination of barrels from using some of the things that we talked about. So I would take mature bourbon and place it into either new bourbon barrels or new wine barrels or new wine barrels with bourbon heads with staves that have been toasted and slow cooked to promote mocha flavors or butterscotch flavors or vanilla flavors or with staves that are suspended in there that had been seared to get different flavors. So we had four different real um, possibilities to to bring it out in different combinations. And we had 14 different barrels that we placed this liquid in, and um, we had one control and tasted these different barrels and how they matured for the every 30 days for the next 36 months. And what came out was, you know, just... So it was, it kind of blew my mind. You know, I had some that after 60 days, one of them tastes like a butterscotch bomb, like a Werther's candy. And oh I thought, my. wow, if this is good at 60 days, it's going to be incredible at 90 days. Yeah. But at 90 days, it had turned and you know, it tastes almost like green wood. So that's oh. the fun part of the maturation process. It's not as much of a science. And it's just like you can have two barrels sitting next to each other. And in one barrel, the water evaporates off first, 
So the proof increases in the next barrel, the alcohol evaporates off first, and so the proof decreases. So it, it, it's not an exact science, and that's what makes it a lot of fun. It's kind of like doing our ocean voyage when we send them out on the sea, and the barrels go to 30 ports on five continents crossing the equator four times. Every time it comes back, even though it's basically the same route, they taste vastly different because of what they encountered during the route. Could be hurricane season, like the Voyage 14 that we just got back. That uh, really, we lost a lot of the product due to evaporation, which condensed it and made it more briny than other ones. So it, it's uh, you just can't put uh, X and Y in and, and know that you're going to get Z. Yeah. So how many of these ocean voyages uh, have your have your barrels been on uh, to date? Well, actually, we just got back uh, Voyage 15, which is 15. a little bit different. Typically, in the, the first 14, we sent out barrels that uh, are known as what would be called a rye bourbon or the small grain, and the bourbon was rye. This last one, we did our first weeded uh, bourbon. So it's a little bit softer. It allowed the flavors that are more typical in the ocean voyage, like I said, the brininess, uh -huh. And also the sugars caramelize when we cross the equator. So you get a ton of caramel. People say oh. it tastes like salted caramel popcorn. And that's, that's what a... really comes out in this weeded version. That sounds delicious. Um, and what about yeah. the, the the freshwater uh, version? I, I, I read a story about uh, you and an accomplice uh, on a small craft going down the Mississippi River from Louisville to, to New Orleans, and it sounded like one or both of y'all were basically sleeping in a casket every night. <laughs> yeah, well, that was Captain Ted who was who took the majority of that trip. And what I was doing is I was reenacting and proving a couple theories that I had. Um, my theory was the reason that bourbon proliferated in Kentucky, or why 98% of the bourbon uh, comes from Kentucky today, where it can be made anywhere in the United States, it wasn't what most people think it is, which is the limestone water or the fluctuation in temperatures. Because people started distilling west of the Appalachian Mountains after the whiskey tax was enacted and they didn't want to pay taxes. And behind the Appalachian Mountains, there is a huge limestone shelf. So anyone, you know, in Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, Indiana, Pennsylvania, they were all distilling with that limestone water. Kentucky had the route to, make, to market to take that bourbon and float it down the river system down to New Orleans where it was either offloaded there or put on ships and sailed around the Straits of Florida and up the East Coast back to where there was a population, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. And what happened was whiskey aged for the first time during that trip. And in my mind, the whiskey transformed into bourbon for the first time during that trip. And that's what the maturation started. And so I wanted to reenact that. And I did it as historically as possible. And my other theory in that was that it tastes more like Jefferson's Ocean than bourbon that's traditionally distilled and aged in Kentucky. And why people were willing to pay so much more for it and demanded it was because of what happened on that trip. So we distilled a couple barrels in January of 2016. 
we waited to what would have been the spring flood subsiding uh, back then, and we took off in a 23-foot boat and drifted down to New Orleans. It took us 58 days. Oh, my. We transferred it onto John Besh's boat at that point, and John and I took it from New Orleans to Key West. We had to first, when we tried to launch originally, um, we got it trapped by a tropical storm for eight days that circled New Orleans and flooded out the rest of Louisiana, which rocked the hell out of the barrels. By the time we got to uh, Tampa Bay, we had to hide out because Hurricane Hermine hit. At that point, these barrels that were about eight months old, the barrel heads had warped and popped, so I had to screw new barrel heads on at that point. I sent it down. We got it all the way down to Key West. I had to send new barrels there, siphon the juice out of these older barrels into new barrels before trying to take it the rest of the way. We got it up to Fort Lauderdale before Hurricane Matthew hit, destroyed our boat. We wintered in uh, Fort Lauderdale before hitchhiking a ride up to New York and landed a day, uh, a year to the date of when we took off. And when we got into those barrels, that barrel, which was, so the bourbon was actually 18 months old, uh-huh. distilled in January of 16. This was June of 17. It was as dark as a 16-year-old bourbon. It was the smoothest bourbon I've ever had. I could still tell that it was kind of young because it was kind of grassy up front, but it had changed immensely from bourbon that was distilled on the same day and aged in Kentucky. It was so much more superior, which I think proved my theory that it was this journey that made this bourbon so much better. Uh, I have to tell you, I I was... yeah. You, you you had me um, holding my breath to hear the end of that story. I, I, I really can't believe that journey. W- what uh, name did you give this this beautiful juice that survived uh, such travels and travails? It's called our Jefferson's Journey, and we package it up. And there's, again, it was only the volume of two barrels, so we package it up in 200-milliliter bottles uh, adjacent to a bottle, a 200 milliliter bottle that was distilled on the same day and aged in Kentucky. So you can tell the contrast. Incredible. uh, It is, it's a stark, stark difference. Is it all gone now? Is that everybody bought it all up? No, we actually haven't put it for sale. We're going to do that in June uh, on our 20th anniversary. Oh, incredible. Well, I, I, uh, I can only imagine, uh, the demand when any when when folks hear this story and, and can imagine what it went through, uh, what kind of price point you'll be able to to, to get for it. Um, but I know that that's well, not the point. The price point we put on it, we'll never make the money back. I guarantee you that was the most expensive bourbon <laughs> ever made. <laughs> I mean, you lost a boat in the process. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> yeah, we lost and a few I, things in the process, but we had a hell of a time. Well, 60 days on the water with, with just a pal, that means I was a pretty good friend. <laughs> yeah, by the end of it, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I did not spend all 58 nights on that. On okay, that okay. I, I was on right. that, that section for a short time. Yeah, and I, I don't mean to suggest that the the point of this is, is the money at the end of it. The, the point of it is is the journey, and Jefferson's journey sounds absolutely like 
uh, you know, the the very best name uh, possible. Uh, I just uh, having heard the story, I'm telling you as you as you're going through it, I'm, I'm I can feel myself. The suspense is building. The suspense the suspense is building, and I was worried we the punchline was going to be, and, and we lost it all in Philadelphia. It all went, you know, no. we. we so I'm I'm glad that that there's there's a a happy ending. There's a happy ending here, and the bourbon turned out to be incredible. So we're really psyched about that. Um, what do you have in the works right now? So as I spoke about uh, the wood experiment and trying different barrels, I've really been working on that for the past six years since 2012, and in June we're going to bottle up. Um, a twin wood experiment. So it's going to be a bourbon that is 10 years old that we took out and we put it into one of these custom proprietary barrels that I've been honing for the last six years. And this juice came out so flavorful. It's unbelievable. I'm really, really excited about that one. And I, and so, I don't want uh, you, don't, don't reveal any trade secrets, but uh, as you've been customized the barrel, what are kind of some of the basic elements of the barrel? Well, we've done, as I said, we, we've added in on top of a charring, we've yeah. added in toasted seasoning and grooving out the barrels. So it, it's a combination of things that we've been kind of honing over the last six years. And uh, so we're, we've created a proprietary barrel for us. And I, I think, you know, as it makes all the difference, um, what goes on in the maturation process, this is a way that we've been, have, been able to manipulate it. And then um, we're going to continue. I'm actually going out uh, at the end of this week to get together with Cyril Chapelet, who I've partnered with for our Chapelet's Pritchard Hill Cabernet cast finish, where we took eight-year-old bourbon and put it into his beautiful Cabernet that's uh, kind of oh. known as a mountain cab out in Napa. Yeah, great black cherry flavors. Black I am so, I am so lucky. That. I I was down in Augusta, Georgia, uh, for the Masters, the beginning of the month, of April, and uh, Chapelet had some of his folks down there, uh, and I, I was so lucky to, uh-huh. to to invite myself into a little tasting, and I was just blown away All by right. it. I mean, yeah. So so I, that that's exciting. Oh yeah, that's great. Actually, uh, he and I did a dinner together on top of Sun Valley, Idaho, a couple months ago, and uh, now we're going to go on a, a nice uh, ride through the mountains in Santa Barbara as part of a, a group that he's affiliated with. So yeah. hopefully, we'll get together and come up with an idea to do something else. That's that's what's been a lot of fun throughout this process. I've collaborated with a lot of really interesting people who are at the top of their field. That's that look at bourbon with different lenses than I have. And uh, it, it really, it's great to learn from them and to use some of the techniques that they've developed in whatever their expertise is and trying to bring it into our world. Yeah. Well, you, you, you just set the, set the stage for something I wanted to ask about. And this is, I'm going to put it in the form of like your, your own personal preference. I'm not going to ask you to tell everybody what you think is the best food for bourbon but for you personally what what do you like to eat uh you know what do you think i i guess it's pretty it, it can vary as much as as what what kind of bourbon you know uh you think you're in the mood for 
will dictate kind of what kind of food you you might be in the mood for. But let me let you answer the question, uh, because I'm really fascinated by by that combination. Well, I I collaborated with Chef Edward Lee for a product called Jefferson Chef Collaboration, where we based it off his Korean fried chicken and tried to create a pairing whiskey. And we did that. And, uh, you know, I think anything spicy or smoky, the chef's collaboration, which is actually two parts bourbon and one part rye whiskey blended together, is oh. fantastic. I aged some bourbon in some spent rum cask. It held Gosling's Family Reserve rum for 20 years. And, oh, man. man, that's such a great bourbon with desserts because it picks up all those rum flavors. Yeah. The Chapelet's uh, Pritchard Hill Cabernet finish. You know, if you like a big Cabernet or a bourbon with a steak, this is the best of both worlds. So, you know, there, there's oodles of things that, that bourbon pairs with. And and what about and the, the ocean, the ocean voyages? Is there a particular flavor profile that comes from, from, from those that you would say, oh, this is, this would Oysters. go perfect. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I love them with oysters on the half shell. Huh. That's my I'm, favorite well, word. I'll you confess. That brininess I, is so prevalent, and that the brine on brine really works well together. Yeah, I've only had like white wine or champagne with oysters, and I don't mean to sound like a I'm, I, I'm not a fancy fellow, but I, when I think about alcohol, it's mainly beer. I drink beer when I'm when I'm having yeah. oysters, but if I'm trying to think about you know so like a pairing kind of thing, it's like a light you know so a white wine with some acid to it. Uh, but but how about I that the the ocean voyage bourbon pour huh? Pour a little Jefferson's Ocean into an oyster on the half shell and do an oyster shooter. Uh, that, that that now now we're talking. I mean, my my goodness gracious! So I'm gonna have First to. First time I did that was at the uh, the Ritz in London. Uh, well, see, so I don't feel bad about talking about any kind of fancy living because there you are at the Ritz in London drinking, you know, doing the, the uh, very perfect kind of oyster shooter. I was doing a bourbon tasting. The chef came up with that. Yeah, and I that, thought it that, was damn good. <laughs> that you, you, that that's a keeper. I mean, uh, I'm very excited yeah. to hear about uh, Chef your collaboration with Chef Lee. He just opened up one of his Succotash restaurants here in Washington D.C., and it's actually walking distance yeah. for me. So I'm just to walk down the street. I'm sure he has some of that right. Chef's collaboration behind the bar there, right? He does. I was there a couple weeks ago, so yeah, he he definitely does. Okay, well, uh, the fried chicken and and chef's collaboration. I don't, I don't think I can do any better than that. <laughs> there you go. You can't go wrong there. All right, Trey. So we we know from from the research you've been uh very, you, you you've been far and wide in terms of your experimentation. We have uh you've tried aging the bourbon in duck blinds. There's a hella skiing a barrel down a mountain. Is there anything that that's that you've thought of? where it's just proved uh, too difficult to take on, either because of cost or, or the logistics? Have you have you had to say, this is one I'd love to try, but I can't make it happen? Well, I don't think there's anything that we've shut down as of yet. I've got uh, some plants to take some barrels in some pretty uh, remote places, and some logistics have come up that have been difficult, but we haven't shut them down yet. Just to okay. do that journey or ocean for the first time, you know, from the TTB, the alcohol's governing body, you know, when we first proposed it to them, you know, they knee jerk reaction was, no, you can't do that. No one's ever done it before. 
but we with persistence we were able to, to figure out a way to, to make it happen and uh hopefully we'll be able to do that uh going forward so uh not all of these will work and some of them i don't have any uh expectations of them working it's kind of more self-indulgent for myself but uh it it'll give us something at the end that we can learn from and yeah if i can do that then it's worthwhile doing for sure uh I, I don't want you to reveal anything again uh, that that that's uh, you know the the secret works, but uh, give us a hint. What give us one one thing that that's you kind of got in in development um, that we might see here, like in the next five years or so. Huh. Well, let's see. I, well, is there mountain climbing things. involved? Are we are we going to to the top of Kilimanjaro? <laughs> No, well, as you said, we're we're going to heli ski a, a barrel yeah. down in, in British Columbia, um, and that's going to be pretty difficult. Now we've used some, uh, we we've got something that I've worked with. It when we finished it in, in these containers, it would blow your head off. It was so strong, but by diluting it down, we really got some great flavors out of it. So. Uh, Something that uh, I'm really anxious to bottle up and get out. It's something we've been working on for a few years now. So, uh, and when will yeah when 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 might we we see this? Is this like a 2018 thing or 2000? Yeah, no, I'm hoping by September October of this year we'll be able to get it out. All right, all right, there we go. For for all of our taste buds, our hungry homies, the culinary comrades, our new bourbon buddies, keep an eye out. Jefferson's Bourbon coming out September, October. We've got a new strain. We're not going to uh, spill the beans on exactly what, what's coming, but we know that it's going to be special. Trey Zeller, thank you so much for coming on today, my friend. You got it, Joe. I've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. And next time I make it up to Succotash in D.C., I'll give you a shout We'll have some of that chef's collaboration. I love it. Chef's collaboration and fried chicken until we can't walk out of there. (laughs) Sounds like a good night to me. Thanks, my friend. All right. My thanks to our new bourbon buddy, Trey Zeller. Fantastic conversation with him. I can't wait to get out and try some of that delicious ocean and of course journey i don't know what i'm gonna have to do i'm gonna have to get on the uh the 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 auction lot and try and get after some of those uh delicious brown liquids before we get over to food news how about a quick word from our pals at black tux the black tux is the easy way my friends for guys to rent suits and tuxedos online just place your order online the suit arrives 14 days before your event. So you just need to look at your calendar, plan it out, and work backwards. It's not that hard. Wear that tux, turn heads, send it back three days after your event. Shipping is free both ways. That's awesome. Whether you're going for a stylist selected outfit, if you're building your own custom look, the Black Tux has tons of suits and tuxedos to choose from. They're always adding amazing new selections. And they have, my friends, a fit algorithm. So you don't have to take a tape measure and stick it around your neck and try to awkwardly measure yourself. The Black Tux does it for you. They let you feel the fit and quality of your suit 
months before your event. If you want to do a free home try-on, they are there for you. Look as great as your date. That's never possible with me. The Black Tux is the way to do it. Get $20 off your purchase and check this out. Visit theblacktux.com slash carbs. That is theblacktux.com slash C-A-R-B-S for $20 off your purchase. That's a lot of money. The Black Tux premium rental suits and tuxedos delivered. All right, my taste buds, my bourbon buddies. It is now time for food news. Yo, Juliet. Hello. What's happening? You know, I didn't get to hear the bourbon interview, but I'm really looking forward to it. Kyle's You're going to enjoy it. it. Yeah, we broke the seal on the brown liquor. Nice. Once you go brown yeah. liquor, your night is just changed. <laughs> really, it does go off in a direction. There's it no going back. Really does. As you know, I don't drink brown liquor, but it's not because of that. I, I, I could always go for a change in direction, but who knows? Anyway, I got some food well, look, news for you. Before we get to the news, I just want to say one thing. That's you and I are going to get together with Trey. Trey okay. is a man of the people. He is clearly, he's a hungry homie. He's a taste bud. He's our bourbon buddy. And I think a drinking, you wait till you hear the interview. You'll get what I'm talking about. Okay. Tre, having a night with Trey is going to be a good night. I'm in, And man. I literally mean good night. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows if I'd even remember it. That's it. I'm in, man. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Are you ready for food news? I can't wait. Food news. Okay, let's start with a with a high a high dollar story. Um, there's a bizarre story coming to us from Yahoo Finance about a Domino's and a Rolex. Domino's has always been a little different. The pizza company, which may or may not be a tech company, has long had a bizarre reward for employees who hit big weekly goals for pizza sales. A Domino's branded Rolex Air King, of which Christie's is auctioning off an example yesterday. That was Tuesday, May 1st. I just want to say I could not find out how much it went for, although I know it auctioned off. We'll follow up on a future episode. Usually the way to get one is for a Domino's manager to have their store hit $30,000 per week for four consecutive weeks in sales. But once in a while... They'll surface on social media or a watch site and bring with it some questions. How is one of the most powerful brands willing to share co-branding with Domino's on the face of their product? Because this watch has a Domino's pizza logo on the face. It's like right underneath the Rolex logo. In general, Rolex has fiercely guarded its design, but it's occasionally shared co-branding. Tiffany-branded watches, for example, fetch an extremely high premium. These double-logo watches fetch an enormous premium from collectors. And because the partnering brands have cachet. The practice of putting the iconic Domino's Domino logo on the dial stopped in the early 2000s, and most of the watches that pop up are from the 90s. Even more mysteries added to the situation because no one really knows how many are out there. The program has been going on for decades, and I doubt we have a good way of knowing how many we have given out. Today, Rolex and Domino's put the logo in a more discreet location on the bracelet, which likely makes Domino's Rolex winners happier, unless that's their style. So, Christie estimates a hammer price of three thousand to five thousand. Most Rolex Air King watches sell for three thousand to fifty to thirty five hundred. Okay, well, that doesn't sound like not um, that outrageous. Much of a, a uptick in like the 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 collectors aren't driving the the price through the roof, but I'm just confused. Me too. I don't really I don't understand this, and also like. 
Does the, the why is it just like the is it the person who owns the franchise or is it the manager? This is the point you raised. It's, and like it seems like a manager. Yeah, like, we talked about this a little bit before we, we we went you know all the way live on this. And not to be too much of like a brown noser, but it's not like one person makes this franchise run. I, I shouldn't there be some kind of reward for the other people? That's the problem with a singular valuable item like this. In the, it, it, the 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 people that that make it possible to sell thirty thousand dollars worth of of Domino's pizza that's a mother f load of of Domino's by the way yes. thirty thousand a week agreed that, that, so you got to get the conveyor belt in the oven churning like you know half a beat faster everybody's got to be throwing the ingredients the the makers you know uh, I'm sure that they're they're doing things. Uh, Based on pre allotments, but you know I like extra on mine. So when you're, when you're doing when you ask for your extra, that means that they're you know I worry. Am I getting the full uh, complement of of extra mushroom, extra cheese that yeah. I asked for on my on my uh, my double pepperoni? Uh, and then you're really putting a lot of pressure on the homies that are getting into those little those buggies and getting out there and hustling around with this this stuff. I mean. That they're, they have to be. It ain't thirty minutes or less. It's fifteen minutes or less if you're going to be doing thirty thousand a week. It seems like to me. And how about that whole crew? Is it you're not? It is. There are. It's not a dozen Rolexes, right? No. Not everybody gets a Rolex. No. Also, I just think this is a low value for Rolexes. By the way, it's not even like the nicest Rolex. Well, I that 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 seems okay to me. Like, why should it be? I don't. I don't. The whole, the whole, it just feels like a weird brand allegiance is the way that I would say it. Because you yeah, don't like, is think... there like a kickback here that we're not being made aware of? <laughs> I am not going in an organized crime direction necessarily, <laughs> but uh, it like the manager at Domino's gets the Rolex, and then does that person wear the Rolex to work? Like, thanks everybody. Here's the, here's here's the reward that I got. Um, Food services doesn't seem like a great industry for having Rolex around. Like you get dirty. Now you're talking. Now this is it. This is. I mean, not not just that, but also like it's 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 like a um, a mismatch. Like who who like the, the people in my life that I know that have worn uh, Rolexes that they they've bought Rolexes for themselves or been gifted Rolexes. Uh, they don't. We're talking about a, a class difference here, right? They, 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 those 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 friends, at least in my life, haven't spent a lot of time at Domino's. It's true. Rolexes it's are not, pricey. It feels like a brand mismatch to me. I am a Domino's I mean, eater, not, and therefore I've never worn a Rolex. I'm a Domino's eater as well, and I've never worn a Rolex. <laughs> that's not to say any. That's not a knock on Rolex. I love their watches. They're beautiful. And I especially love the vintage and, and you know, the, the secondary market in vintage Rolexes is, is spectacular these days. God bless the Internet. And someday I hope to, to have, you know, the, the, the extra cash, the discretionary cash in my budget to buy a luxury item like a, like a watch. I mean, I'm not there right now because I'm hustling my 70-year-old through school here in the District of Columbia. But the weird, it's just a very weird idea. I know. I know. I don't. I don't it's bizarre. Get it. I, good luck to whoever wins. Who won this? I, I wish you well. I hope you enjoy your Domino's watch. Your Domino's Rolex. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Next story comes to us from the New York Post via 
friend of the podcast, friend of the ringer, Mr. Kevin Wilds. You might know him. Oh, half baked ideas. Yeah, the K man. That's right. We haven't had we haven't had a fake idea. And how long has it been? Quite a while. Quite Could a while. Come on here. Wonder if he has any fake food ideas. I know. Half, yeah, I was just thinking a half baked baked goods idea or something. Yeah, half baked. Seriously, half baked. That's right. This wasn't fake ideas. It was half baked. Half baked. Yeah. That's, that's very on brand. I know. We got to get him on what the pod. What are we doing? I don't yeah, know. He's on. That's I'm sure. It. He, I'm sure he would do it. I'll ask him. Anyway, this is a story from Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. This is from the New York Post, and it is about a new ice cream flavor at Bruno Pizza NYC in the East Village. It combines pizza and ice cream. To quote this article, boom. Well, technically pizza crust ice cream. It's on the menu at Bruno Pizza NYC in the East Village where chefs created the frozen frankenfood with the restaurant's wood oven and basement flour mill. According to Demian Rapucci, the cool creation goes for $5 a scoop and it features caramelized pizza crust in a gelato base. It's like that sounds honestly really good to me. To make his pizza fied yeah. ice cream, he chars several plain pizza crusts in Bruno's oven, then steeps the crust in the gelato base overnight to let the caramelized bits of bread infuse into the gelato. In the morning, he strains out the chunks of toasted pizza crust, then spins the remaining mixture until it's creamy. I'm feeling this. Me too. I uh, want to try it. Part partly because uh well, in the very first place, I'm always I always lean more towards the savory, salty side than the sweet side. Okay. So anytime you're taking something savory, salty, and sticking it into something like ice cream and a kind of a neutral ice cream flavor, I'm on that stuff. I was going to say on that shit, but, you know, uh, you don't have to always maximize the E label on this thing, the explicit label. I, I also take great comfort from the uh, origins of it, right? The the fact that this is, is uh, coming from a place where I know uh, in the first place they have to do pizza proper to survive because you can't be a half-stepper in that portion of town and bring out half-assed pizza and survive. And secondly, their, their customers require, they have a very high level of, of the the. The sophisticated pizza palette there means that that this ice cream better be on point, better be a delicious uh, mouthful to to uh, pass muster. And the fact that that we're reading about it right now suggests to me that it must be on point. What do you think? I think that I like the seriousness with which they make their ice cream because talking about the base is kind of like how you know it's going to be good. Like that is an indication to me that they know what they're doing. Like they because. That's that's the secret to a really good like designer ice cream for lack of a better term is like a, a an emphasis on on that base and so I am hopeful that this is a good one. Well, and I've liked this trend. You know, I you, uh, I like a little bit of a of a chunk that's coming from some form of of bread. I like this. Uh, there's a waffle uh, ice cream out there right now, like a like a morning waffle kind of ice cream. I'm not re- remembering all the ingredients or the purveyor of it, but you know, big big like chewy chunks. I like the red velvet um, cupcake ones where you oh, get some yeah. chewy bites. I like the the birthday cake one that's out there. Like I'm I'm sure. into like a a cakey chewy like you know I like frozen bread is is basically what I'm getting at. There's a place in LA called Milk, not to be confused with Milk Bar, that has a a red velvet ice cream with red velvet with cake swirls in it. And it's the best ice cream I've ever had. It is so fucking good. I can't even tell you. 
It's so fucking good. All right. I haven't That's had on the it list a long for the time. next visit. Nobody's taking me there. It's good. Uh, it's because it's know. not it's not hip or trendy. Like it had a moment a while ago and now it's just like a bakery with good ice cream. But like the good. red the red velvet ice cream is vastly underrated. And you wanna know what? I'm over hip and trendy. Just give me something that's no fuss. That's it. That's where we're at. Like this is why when I was out in August and we went around eating, Simmons and I, we we just hit the standards. We didn't go. We only tried one hipper trendy place, uh, and it it had a very fussy burger that was well, it was fine, but it wasn't like you know the most unbelievable burger I ever had. And I I liked um, uh, the apple pan burger. Yeah, exactly. Like it was it just, equal to the fussy burger that I had. Food for the people is what I'm interested in. That's that's what we that's what we're all about here. It's so true. Okay, on that note, this is food for many people, but fewer as a result of this next story. Uh oh. Uh oh. From the Boston Globes, a forty-nine dollar lobster roll. A recent shortage has lobster prices soaring. This is horrible timing. Oh shit! This is this is a, for the lobster roll for the Rolex crowd. I know. What, what the hell happened? <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, here's what happened: as the price per pound has skyrocketed over the last few months, the cost of lobster dishes on restaurant menus across the city of Boston have been off the charts. As chefs have been looking to claw back some of the margins, a combination of lousy weather, international demand, and iced over Canadian fisheries has created a shortage of lobster. That has driven whole hard shell lobster prices to as high as $15 a pound this spring, up from $8 a pound last year. For chefs buying pre-shucked lobster meat for their rolls, the price has been hovering at $40 a pound or about $8 oh more than a year ago. Restaurants, restaurants have had to adjust their menus accordingly. And in some cases, chefs are eating much of the difference and it has many worries as they head to the start of the summer season. Typical pricing for a lobster roll at North Square Oyster in the North End is around $24. But it has been listed as market price. And for the past few days, it's been char- this restaurant has been charging $29 and it actually costs $47 to prepare. So this is actually a crisis. That is a oh, no. $18 loss on a lobster roll. And my biggest complaint about lobster rolls and tuna rolls, which I prefer on Cape Cod, is that they're really small and it's not filling. Like you need to have a second meal after a lobster roll. And so this is a, a huge problem. I, it just means we're not eating lobster rolls. Exactly. I mean, I'd hate to cross it off the list. It is one of my traditions, one of my favorite things. I go, I, I, uh, lucky enough to be able to travel up to the Cape with my family uh, for summer vacation. And one of the very first things we do, we, there's a particular establishment. I go, I order this giant Bloody Mary with two humongous shrimp in it, and I order a lobster roll. That kicks off vacation. I, I mean, I'm going to have to come up with a replacement for the lobster roll because this is insane. I, 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 don't, I don't know if you heard me say this at the beginning. I'm not wearing an effing Rolex, so I'm not paying, you know. $45 for it's a lobster It's completely roll. ridiculous. This is a real crisis for New England. I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, hopefully it gets better as we get deeper into summer. I'm going to Boston and Cape Cod in August, and I was I would be interested in having a lobster roll, perhaps. And I yeah. don't know. Now it's now it's in peril. Well, I'm interested. I'd like to talk to somebody that um, has a real expertise in substitute lobster meat because you can get like spiny lobster from from um warm water region uh like down in in the and the on the caribbean or something like uh are there are there lobster substitutes you know you're missing out on the sweetness of the and the succulence of the the that new england up all the way up to nova scotia you know that that yes uh, the lobster the, corridor 
the lobster corridor. <laughs> that's it. That's what but I call I, it. I, are there substitutes that are acceptable that where the price, you know, we could, we can, you know, what if you did half of the, of the, of, of the sweet succulent lobster corridor and then, and then supplemented it with half uh, of one of these warm, warm water things. I don't know. It's, it's time to get creative, but we can't have a $45 lobster roll. It's just insane. I completely agree. It's completely insane. Like sometimes, Ruining summer. Some, some summers on the Cape, the oysters will be really expensive or clams will be really expensive. And then they're just like off the table. And you're like, well, this is not a part of my summer this year. Right. This is a year that I'm not having them. <laughs> what's your uh, what's your lobster roll place on Cape Cod, my friend? I don't want to talk about it. I don't oh. want to. I, I, I can't give it up. I don't oh want to drive the masses to it's what it's my shack. Everybody's got a shack. If, <laughs> you, if you have spent any time in New England. What you, time you, is it? Well, I mean, what, sorry. What town is it in? Just tell me that. I don't want to say. I don't want to say. Oh my god! I'm just gonna guess. It would be too revealing. It would be too revealing. I have a feeling that you're like a Barnstable kind of guy. I bet you don't go to the Outer Cape. So I'm gonna guess it's like in the bar. It's like no further than Sandwich when you're going down Route Six. That's my my guess. I'm just gonna leave it at no comment. Okay, I'll be asking you off mic. I'll tell you off air. That's it. Finally, one more story for you. And we can't we can't go a week without some fast food news. I I'm not even counting Domino's because that was a bizarre relax story. This is about McDonald's, and this is about um, a new international move that they are making. This is coming to us from Food Beast, and I'm just going to paraphrase. So there's a McDonald's in Chicago, which is which is their like their one of their headquarters, and and this used to be the Rock and Roll McDonald's when I was in college. I think they redid it; no longer is. Now it's like international, and this Chicago McDonald's is introducing dishes for McDonald's in other countries. So for starters. They have a third of a pound bacon cheeseburger from Canada, bacon cheese fries from Australia, and a strawberry chocolate coconut McFlurry from Brazil. So, like, this is the first round of international products they are going to feature. They will feature others as well, um, I think, in the future. But even for now, I, I think this sounds exciting. Bacon cheese fries from Australia? I'm very interested. So the the idea here must be that these are recipes inspired by their offerings abroad. Yes. And they are replicated uh, domestically using domestic ingredients. Yeah, it's not like imported and, from Australia. Yeah, right. And and, and the, the uh, McSpicy chicken from Hong Kong isn't coming from Hong Kong. Um, I am into this. My only question is for these kinds of items that are not like um, top sellers, top, uh, um, you know, they're not going to be in in heavy rotation. How are the ingredients going to be? It's a good question. How's the breading? The breading on on the on the deeply marinated chicken breast, the spicy breading. If you if it's not like you know, it's not artisan. You know, it's not a breading that's coming from uh, the, the the local market. Where is it coming from, and and what's the uh, you know what's the the traits? I'm interested in in origin and and portability, and uh, I want to know what's what what is at the heart of it. I can't answer that. Those are very important questions. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know you can't. <laughs> but. I just like the idea of it, particularly the cheese. Any, any kind of cheese fries innovation that we're introducing here in America, I'm very pro. I mean, cheese fries are just a delicacy. Yeah, like one of these salads has mozzarella in it. Where yes. is it? Buff- it's not going to be buffalo mozzarella because buffalo no. mozzarella is $12, $12 you as, know. As much as a lobster roll, nearly as much as a, as a Rolex. Exactly, exactly. We can't but afford like, that. 
I've always, you know, there are times when I'm I'm traveling or I need a quick fix and I think about McDonald's for like a quick salad kind of deal. Yeah. I know how I get how dumb that is, but I'm in the mood for for a salad as a quick fix and McDonald's is what I'm driving by and I just keep driving. But one of these things is the Manhattan salad. Uh, list of kale, romaine, spring lettuce with grape tomatoes, cranberries, apples, and then you can have chicken on it if you want. Like that, I would get that. Sure. If I if I could be assured that it, the the um, those lettuces weren't going to taste like like plastic, like they've been sitting in a bag, and like oh here's the, here's one of these dummies coming through here ordering a stupid salad. What we make here is cheeseburgers. We're McDonald's. But here you go. You want a salad? Here's the salad. And then it tastes like the plastic bag that it came in. Right. That's my concern. Right. Uh, very fair. We'll have maybe maybe if I ever go back to Chicago, I will take a trip to this this uh, McDonald's. I know exactly where it is. It was like a landmark when we would be in Chicago. But the innovation on like these fries, you know, the fries are going to be spectacular. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. Melted I mean, cheese and cheese and bacon fries with, with with McDonald's fries. Yes. Sounds phenomenal. Um. I'm not ashamed to admit that I've had Del Taco cheese fries, chili cheese fries, and they're great. And that's not even like top of the line fries. Yeah. Why, why would you be ashamed to admit that? I don't know. Like, no Del Taco is be... not really like top tier uh, um, fast food, but it's right by my house. So sometimes it... in a weak moment, I go. Oh, so it's not even up to Taco Bell standards? No. Taco Bell's far superior. Oh, I had no idea. I, I don't know Del Taco. I have to. It's that, good. It's good in a okay. pinch when you're driving in home and something or whatever. I don't know. Well, you know and I'm, you need you need a chili cheese fries fix. Yeah, That's what you do. Exactly. You just go straight Boom. to Del Taco. There we go. House, thank you for having me as always. We've done it. That's another good one in the books. Let's not uh, go rush out and buy any Rolexes. Has there, what, what, do we, what do we have to do at the ringer to get a Rolex? What do you think? I think it's it's, it's off the table. It's <laughs> off the table. The rigor yeah. Rolex is off the table. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Good House. To Talk to you later. Thanks, Juliet. All right. There we go, my hungry homies. Another outstanding episode. My thanks again to Trey Zeller. Quick shout out to La Limena Grill here in the DMV. Authentic Peruvian food. I was lucky enough to hit that spot over the weekend. And let me tell you, this is high class, properly priced, delicious, authentic Peruvian cuisine. I enjoyed very much the Causa de Pollo. The uh, 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 ají de gallina, the arroz con mariscos, the tiraditos de pescado, and many more. The asabuco there is unbelievable. I can't urge you, if you're in the area, get yourself out to La Limena Grill. It will fill you up. That's it, my hungry homies. Of course, we'll be back next week to help fill your belly or perhaps quench your thirst. But until then, let's stay hungry out there. 